All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to CritCast episode two. Today, I'm with David Smee, and we're here to talk to you about deck construction and deck building, like how you should just, how to approach deck building uh, in, in terms of Beastgrave. Uh, but, well, it, it's applicable for all versions of Warhammer Underworlds, but specifically at the time of this episode, it's Beastgrave, because we're in season three at the moment. Um, but before I get into the main body of the podcast, I'd just like to introduce you to uh, my co-host today, I guess, or interviewer, or interviewee, there we are, uh, David Smee. So introduce Hello. yourself. Nice to be here. Um, I'm David Smee. I'm fairly out there on the scene, I feel. I'm part of the Reading Group. Um, some would refer to me as the leader of Reading Group, but I would never be so vain as to suggest. Oh, no, Chancellor of the Reading Group is <laughs> more appropriate. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, we have quite a strong playing group, uh, and I'm very privileged to uh, be able to take part and therefore practice the game quite a lot against some very good opponents. Yeah, because you've been playing. I you you did start early in Shades, but I don't know when exactly you did start. But uh, you've been playing for a long time, and the Reading group is incredibly strong. I'd say uh, I could quite confidently say they're probably the strongest group of Underworlds gamers in the United Kingdom, I'd say, well, even though that is very contentious. Well, according um, to the um, Best Coast pairings, we are the best group in the world. Uh, oh. That's, that's, the, that's the data. It's out there for you. We, we beat everyone else. Um, well, that's impressive considering we barely even use the Best Coast pairings app. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we, I've been playing pretty much since the beginning. I've picked up the game, loved it, and just ignored every other game since basically uh met you obviously very <laughs> early on uh uh as as we quickly formed a rivalry i felt uh between going to various local tournaments and seeing which one of us would win yeah it basically came like if if none of us lost in the first round we ended up facing each other constantly yeah um, back in the old days of say yeah because uh, you were originally Iron Skulls boys, I was originally um, Steel Hearts champions, and I became Spike Claw Swarm, and then you stuck with the Fiends. Yeah, yeah, I moved over to the Fiends after Iron Skull boys because they were just better in every way. Uh, yes, unfortunately, yes, that is, that is sadly true. Uh, until uh, but, I until I'd won with them actually, and then I worked my way round all the Shades by Warbands. Uh, uh, and got stuck for a very long time on the dwarves. Eyes of Night. Oh no! Yo, I thought about Eyes of Night. No. I think you were the first to win in the world with all the shades by Warbands. I was, and I did it with the more yes. painted as well, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Like, because um, I did it with all the shades by Night Vault Warbands, but yeah. only like two thirds of them were painted. Yeah, um, but it's well, still like an impressive feat back then as well. It's still really commendable. I, uh, I unfortunately had a uh, beautiful child uh, which therefore meant that my um, playing rate dropped during night vaults quite a lot so and I you also got stuck on eyes of the nine I, I did get stuck on eyes of nine and a little bit obsessed by them for quite a while it's okay uh, i've won with them but it's, it's fine I, I know it gets tough <laughs> um no, but it's like um because i think so the only people to win all of shadespire are you me and jay claire and then it's me and Jay Claire, who have won with all of Night Vault and Chase Buyer. Yeah. Um, but it's like, that's kind of impossible now. But in terms of like your accomplishments, you came second 
at UK Games Expo for the first time, which was, I believe, 2018. Yeah, something like that. 2019. Um, um, and then you were the highest, it, well, in the world's biggest single-player Grand Clash, which had 160 players in January 2019. You came top 10, so you were undefeated. I've come, the nine. I've come, yeah, I've come top 16 in every Grand Clash with the exception of one. And my excuse for not coming in top 16 for that was because after driving three hours to get there, I got out of the car, vomited beside it, and then slept for 12 hours before my first game. So probably wasn't on the best form. <laughs> but still, that's that's really good. And like, I know a lot of people get hooked up on like, you need to win and everything. But I, I look more over consistency over just getting those wins because there's a lot of people who have like won just like one grand clash who haven't necessarily not to knock that their their win but they haven't placed consistently high like they've got it and then just peaks or like it's it's uh, a it's a game where if you roll a lot of crits you can win and that's why i am the best <laughs> um but yeah, it's like uh, you and the Reading Group are incredibly strong. Uh, you guys are the reason I don't win every tournament because it's very annoying uh, running to you guys because you're so good. Um, but yeah, it's just a way to like, I don't think we should build the game around personalities, but I do think it's good to acknowledge and promote those players that are really good, especially a group of players like the Reading guys yourselves because you all meet up regularly, like insane group of testers. and uh, Well, like you test each other, yeah. always playing, or like numerous scenarios like what i used to do when i started out it's, it's and I don't there's, um, there's a good healthy group as well we have yeah. regularly we have like eight to ten people turning out every wednesday uh, to play and even now we are continuing to play on our wednesday sessions uh via the medium of skype uh but uh yeah it makes a big difference and we we find therefore we keep getting fresh blood in as well so i think our player base is probably in around 18 19 players well because uh, before all this like lockdown happened didn't you guys uh for your local gaming store you retrieve like 20 people per night to the point where you've now outnumbered the magic players magic uh, the yeah, we, we've on the wednesday nights the magic has died and we've taken over entirely we've allowed a little be. bit of room for the blood bowl players uh, but <laughs> oh, there's, yeah. a, got, got... there's a bit of a crossover there some of our players also play blood bowl Unsurprisingly. Yeah, you got you got to leave the Blood Bowl players their space. Um, but yeah, for today's uh, episode, it's deck building. I think it's something that's been covered a lot, but um, not to say others haven't done it well. It's just uh, this is how I approach it, as well as David and most of the UK players I know. It's just a more far away to get people more than just going like this is good. So this is why I take it. It's more helping you through that thought process. Yeah, uh, I've. Um, because of David, I've also got uh, two articles co-written that I'll post that you can read uh, in the description with this podcast. Um, because I've also got my deck building article, which I wrote at the start of Shades by, which is still valid. But the main articles I talk in, I'm talking about today, which we'll reference, are Objective Cards and You, which were co-written by David Smee, which just talks about it, it's not too valid today to an extent because there's now a surge limit. So you can only take six surges in your deck but it just shows you what kind of ratios of cards you should run for your objective deck. Uh, and then another one co-written by David, well, it's, it's written by David, published by me, uh, is card combos and just talking about should you run cards that are only designed to work together. Um, but it's just today's article, yeah, it's just helping you build your deck, making it 
as efficient as possible as you can and try and like not to be too gimmicky because the key thing when you're building an objective deck it's how you're going to win the game and how you're going to score glory to keep your fighters strong and upgraded so it's really important to make sure your deck's reliable and consistent i I would agree with that i I think there's a a bit of an old school thought though i have though um at the moment you've got your decks are built to score everything. That is how everyone builds a deck. Yes. You're expecting to score everything. I still like to play a little bit where I will put cards in there. I wouldn't necessarily expect to play or score all of them and maybe pay a bit more several different high-pointing ones, expecting only to score a couple of them, Uh, which is very much how it was in Shades of You would not score your whole deck. You would pick and choose what you scored uh, yes um because like it's, it's one thing i've been reminded while i've been playing warhammer underworlds online is that in shades by we didn't really score all our deck it was just it was like you scored about 70 percent of it 75 and you had like a few fringe cards that were there just for certain much matchups yeah um like for my spike claws deck i had hone survival instincts uh which is one glory for having none of your fighters die that round yeah. And at first glance, you may think that's useless, but it's really good in like when you're stalemating someone in aggro or play against, playing against someone who's trying to play turtle control or sitting back at the board and doing nothing. And it's not. Th- and it was that uh, one glory that would give you the upgrade that could then make a big difference yeah. uh, because it was a lot lower glory scoring or a lot slower glory scoring. Yeah, even in Nightbolt, you had the same kind of thing. Like with my um, the deck I used to win with Thorns of the Briar Queen for the Scottish Grand Clash, uh, that one was just about swarming your opponent. So everything was quite situational because it relied on positioning, which you can't always do. But if you did, it was really exploitative and, and good. Uh, but then you come to <laughs> Beastgrave in Season 3, and it's yeah, you are basically just expected to score everything. Like my Grimwatch deck is just crazy. And my um, oh, L- Lady Harrow's Mournflight, basically designed to score everything. You you now generally with Beastgrave, you're expected to score 11 out of your 12 objectives, and generally it's 12 out of 12. And if you can't do that, unfortunately, in tournaments at the moment, your deck isn't good. You need really. other ways to score lots of glory. The the kind of yes. glory you need to be hitting is at least 20. Uh, yes, um, we, that's that's a kind of minimum game winning deck. I would say now. Yeah, because Nightfall used to be, we said it was about 16. Now I definitely agree it's about 20. Your deck either needs to reach 20 glory uh, for Beastgrave, either just via your objective deck alone or as well as having cards. Uh, but we'll get onto that later because it's it can get like, it, it's a very interesting and deep subject, unfortunately, and fortunately. Um, but I, the, the Beastgrave at the moment, I think that unfortunately the only deck that can run, the only playstyle that can really run um, multiple objectives that are not score, that you don't have to score every game are hold objective players because you've got uncontested, uh, which is you're controlling two and your opponent is con- controlling none for free objectives, and coveted spoils controlling all objectives for free. So you can There's, easily run both because yeah. you can have a crazy high scaling objective deck. Yeah, it's the end phase three glory conditional, but because they almost contradict each other in the play style, running both makes sense because you're probably going to get one or the other versus yes, opponents. it's that kind of craziness. Um, but when you're approaching the deck first, deck building, um, what we always do is we look at what warband we're running. So yeah. uh, it's 
it's really dependent by your warband. In Nightfall and Shadespire, warbands were more flexible in a way because they had a greater card pool. Um, because you could basically design, you can still do it to an extent with Beast Grave. You can have a warband play any playstyle. Uh, like an example I, li- I like to use is my Spike Claw Swarm. That the, they were a warband that were originally not designed to work in aggro at all, and then yeah. I helped champion them as aggro monsters. Um, so a warband can do anything. It just depends how easy it is for them to spec into either aggro, hold objectives, control, flex, which is a combination, or even magic if if they have, or like hunters and quarries. But that's branching out a bit more. Um, so you just look at your warband and identify their strengths. Uh, I think some warbands are slightly harder to identify their strengths. Uh, and actually, that's where their normal strength is kind of going towards the flex. But at present, in the present meta, flex is actually very hard to do successfully. Um, yes, it's probably I agree. the hardest of all the ones to actually try and do. While previously, I thought flex was very strong. Uh, yeah. uh, within uh, Beastgrave, it is not at all. So very, very good flex warbands like the Beastmen, um, who would have been amazing uh, a year ago in the kind of flex meta, um, don't suffer. They suffer because they're not brilliant at one thing. Um, they, they suffer a little bit like yeah, an Eyes of a Nine style. Uh, where they've yeah, because I'd say... The only surge, so the thing is, surge was too. I mean, not surge. So flex was too strong before, uh, and I think it's deservedly more difficult now. But at the detriment of like hold objectives becoming too strong. Um, but I'd say the strongest flex warband at the moment are Lady Howell's Mournflight, specifically my build. It's really difficult, but I think that's where I'd like flex, where it's hard to do. Um, but really rewarding once you because it relies more on game knowledge and player knowledge. I'm um, going to be massively controversial and completely disagree with you on the uh, objectives being too strong. I think historically objectives have been the worst, the underdog all the way through. And actually now they're a viable deck. And because people haven't been used to playing against them or using them or coming up against them, uh, they see it as really strong because those of us who have used objective decks before now seem to outplay them. Uh, yes, uh, I think it's like, because it took me, because uh, when I was doing the Scottish Grand Clash, the thing I focused on a lot was learning how to play hold objectives because I was running supremacy on our only way out. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like that object- objective disruption, which a lot of people still haven't gotten the hang of. Yeah. Um, like I find, because it, it's really card dependent when it comes down, but if, if you see someone an objective, you need to charge and kill them off. Uh, but at the moment in general, while I do agree with David that uh, hold objectives are just viable, they're only really strong at the moment because people just don't know how to play around it. Yeah. Um, uh, even now, I'd say they still don't like a lot of people do, but I'd still say not the majority of people know how to play around hold objectives. If, if I was going to pick a meta that I thought was the um, too strong, it is the score more meta. Uh, and actually, I would advise people to move away from it because it's not consistent. Oh yeah, that was um, at the end of Night Vault when a lot of players were just running uh, Combination Strike and Victory After Victory and even um, Superior Tactician with that as well. Well, even even uh, now, people are people are still there's still enough score mores out there with things like the Opening Gambit and stuff, and it it can be, it is a swingy 
that's the problem with it as a as a deck because all your half your deck requires the other half to score it comes yes. down to your card draw really dependently so yes in some games you will be able to bash it out you'll have a round where you'll knock out and score six of your objective tokens and score 10 glory without breaking a sweat but that's all down to the order that you've drawn the cards and yeah. so for a tournament player who's trying to be consistently scoring that's not what you're aiming for yeah because i think a good example of that is even though i agree with david um my grimwatch deck that i was going to take to adepticon was basically a combo score more deck yeah. uh, but the issue is grimwatch make that so consistent that it just it worked when it shouldn't um so generally i do agree i think it's it because the thing about Grimwatch is they have so many really strong, reliable surge objectives that they make those cards work when they really shouldn't. Um, but you ha- like um, but that's in... still dependent on you drawing those surges. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But it, uh, it becomes annoyingly really consistent with the Grimwatch from my yeah. experience. Um, I... Going on to objectives and the fact we know we're all going to be taking six surges because they are now so easy going forwards. Uh, and there's a lot of common surges that are very easy to do. Uh, the ones that I'm talking about, when I say really easy surges, they effectively go by the idea that you don't interact with the opponent. They can be done in a single activation or potentially not even in an activation. Power uh, step in some, in yeah, some instances. And they, they don't require a special card. So yes. calculated risk is a brilliant example of this. All it requires you to do is do a move, do a lethal. Uh, a good comparison is change of tactics because that usually took setup. You either had to take a, a card to make yourself on yeah. guard, or you went on guard and then had to hope your fighter didn't die or was in range still. Yeah. Um, um, and then you've got things that I don't categorize in that very easy one are things like strong start because you have to go and attack the opponent. In fact, you have to take them out of action. Any, and then if you draw into it, you can't score it if you've already killed yeah. someone. E- even something uh, like the. Um, Bold Conquest, where the leader has to charge onto an objective and make an attack. It's forcing your positioning, so it's putting you at a disadvantage to do it. So that's not what I would regard as a very easy objective. Uh, I think the easiest objectives, like universally, are just obviously calculated risk, unless you're ethereal. Uh, um, Temporary victory. You could argue... um, Temporary victory... Yes, for two warbands, and only two warbands, and that is uh, the Ghosts, the... Uh, oh, the Briar Queen. Yeah, Briar Queen, and uh, the Goblins. Yeah. Yep. They can do it in a uh, single activation with no cards, no nothing. For them, it is a very easy card. Uh, yeah, I, I know in general people really hate on Temporary Victory, but in general, outside of those two warbands, it is yeah. very strong, but yeah. I don't think it's game-breakingly bad because like uh when i'm playing against the reading guys it's actually really hard to score it because we usually outside of just burning push cards they're either attacking to push me off or attacking or like attacking to kill each other on objectives because the key thing is you can't push a dead fighter Uh, but that's the risk because aggro isn't as strong in general anymore but temporary victory is good but it's only an auto score for two warbands really if if you are finding that you're playing other warbands than those two and they are scoring temporary victory and you can do nothing about it you are not running enough push cards but we'll come on to that yep. later yep um i think what other 
oh what was it um it's one way you can oh, i haven't played the game in so long when you have controlling two objectives one in your opponent's territory and one in yours yeah so, you see again i that i'm on the fence about that that's the too easy. Swift I think capture. That's really balanced swift capture yeah it's um, really balanced but it's, again it's, it's the easy. it's the fact but you've got to sorry you've got to control an objective in the opponent's half yes so it shifts so, your position to a, a worse position so I don't have a problem with that. You're having to oh, no, make yeah, the I, sacrifice for it. Uh, shortcut, I guess you could argue, is a really easy surge. The issue is it's entirely dependent, unless you're playing right. um, uh, the Grash Rex to spoilers. Yeah, so um, uh, I think we can forgive the fact that it's really easy for one warband, which yes. probably needs it. Uh, <laughs> but So I, I'll forgive shortcut. But these are... and. Even though these cards I'm talking about, and there's a few in-faction ones that you could probably lump in there as well, I don't see them as an issue, I should point out. They're part of the game. Um, what they do do is lead to this culture and idea of score mores. Uh, and I think it is a double-edged sword. You make a deck that's very swingy, which means you can go and fight someone and defeat them with no problems at all. And then in the next game, you get that deck coming up wrong. So you just don't stand a chance of winning. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is not just bad for you as an individual, as a player, to go and run that right. deck. Um, it's actually bad for the game because if you take that deck and you just it turns out brilliantly, it doesn't matter what the opponent does because uh, your deck came up right. You win regardless yes. of skill level. That's the problem I have uh, with my with my Grimwatch. Uh, but I've got some stats we can reference. Um, so this is one David wrote in Objective Cards and You. So for your third end phase cards, yeah. so you've got, uh, when it comes to objective deck, you've got surges, which you score immediately or score immediately cards. Um, you've got hybrid objectives, which are just end phase objectives, yeah. which are like, they have two different scoring conditions. Um, you've got dual objectives, which generally give you more glory, but have two um scoring conditions and they're all end phase objectives so they're scored in the end phase uh compared to surges which are scored during the action phase and then you have third end phases which are scored at the end of the game um so if you have a third end phase card in your deck the chance of drawing at least one in your first hand is 25 percent yeah uh two is 46 percent and the chance of drawing both is five uh the chance of drawing three if you're really insane is 62 percent uh, for drawing at least one, 13 for at least two, and under less than 1% for drawing all three. So as I um, talked about in this article, the idea was that uh, 25% was the kind of what I would regard as a fair risk, uh, but I would actually increase what that is talking about. So with, here I was talking about third end phase cards because often they were three pointers you couldn't score until the end phase the last third end phase so they blocked your hand any other points until then and you could get away with in the second phase kind of holding on to them into the third phase and it was worth it um nowadays i would question whether it's worth it uh and think because of the surges you're probably by the second phase into the second phase going to gone through over half your deck if you've yes. been playing correctly. So you're looking at over 50% chance that you've got that third end phase at the end of the second round, which could be problematic in itself. I would... Yeah, I think the only third end phase... So before you had Superior Tactician, um, yeah. and even then I'd say that took skill to play around because I've been playing it for over two years. And you have to learn um, 
to hold on to it and how to play around having that in your hand because it basically wins you games or keeps you in the game. Yeah. Um, the only third end phase objective I'd recommend at the moment is Dominion of Death for um, the Mourn Flight because it's free glory. It's actually quite easy to score uh, and it's very difficult to deny, but that's the only really third end phase. You've got denial, but because of how fast everyone is and more, to, more importantly, the Grimwatch, it's basically incredibly unreliable to score as a third end phase objective. So the only questionable one you could argue that is technically a third end phase is um, dug in because you can't score that in the first round. That, so I guess that's yeah. worth mentioning now. Uh, within, I was going to say within the third end phase cards, I now group what I would call risky high pointers that are unlikely to get in the first phase. So yes. there's several cards out there that are actually quite hard to get in the first phase, which you got to think, well, if they turn up firsthand, do I want them? So uh, let's think of some examples of this. There's the uh, Run Ragged, right? Well, the one that lots and lots of people misread, um, yes. I actually think is a massively strong card for a small warband, particularly a small aggro warband. But in the first phase, you're unlikely to score against a large number. So if you come against Grimwatch or someone like that, a big horde warband, you're unlikely to score it. However, yeah, if because you... Run Ragged is all fighters, all surviving fighters have move and or charge tokens yeah. for two glory. But later on, once you've killed a few of their fighters and they've only got a few left, it becomes increasingly likely you could do it. And it's quite an easy score at that point. So it's one that I would be thinking, well, I could run that in my deck as my non-first phase card, as it were. Like if I get that later yeah, in the game, that's fine. But I think I yeah, the want... third end phase has kind of evolved into, uh, as you've said, just cards you're not really going to score in the first round, but yeah. something that progressively gets easier to score as the game goes on. Yeah. Uh, and, there's, and, they're, and they're only really worth taking, obviously, if they're worth two or three glory. Yeah, if, they, yeah, if you can't I think, score them in the first phase and they're not worth and they're only worth one glory, just don't take them. Yeah, you like you could run conquest, which is a third end phase for two glory, but my issue is for two glory it's not enough. Uh, a third end phase that's worth running needs to be minimum three glory. Two two glory is just not enough, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but on the card stats, um so the interesting thing of drawing like one of these cards, specifically a third end phase is drawing at least one in your first two hands, you have a 50% chance. So yeah. this includes you ditching your hand or uh, you've scored all three objectives and you're drawing again. Obviously, this increases with variance the more you have surges. Yeah. Um, and if you have two or more, it's 78% uh, chance of drawing one, 23% chance of drawing two. And if you have three or more, it's 91% to draw at least one of those cards in your first two hands, 41% to draw both, and 9% to draw three. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind because the issue, like especially when you're planning a deck for Beast Grave, you need to be hyper efficient. But if you're playing more like Shades by Night Vault, then it's it, you're more encouraged to run it, especially the cards like Superior Tactician, because you've got more freedom in in terms of scoring. I agree. So yeah, it's it's effectively, I suppose, the numbers tell me that I can take one slightly risky high pointing card that I could score yeah. later in the game. Yeah, because I think no for my Mournflight, it was Dominion of Death, but that's just a really easy card to score. Yeah. Uh, I think my actual card was probably Path to Victory because um, I needed to kill someone. So generally, I'm not doing that in the first round, but by rounds two and three, 
I'm in a position with the glory to kill and I'm inspired to kill someone. So for me, that would be more like something I score later in the game. Yeah. Uh, and then for my Grimwatch, it's definitely dug in because even though dug in is full glory for if you've controlled yeah. three or more objectives since the start of the round, uh, which you basically can't do in round one. Uh, but you can do with round two if you use quickening greaves to push yourself on before the start of the round. Uh, but it's just that's a really actually more reliable for glory card than you realize. Um, but then going on to surges. So at the moment, b- before this article was written, there was no surge limit. So uh, this is an objective you score immediately. So most people at this time were running about eight or nine, I think. That was the average. Um, the, uh, the, the, at the time this was written there wasn't enough good consistent surges yes um, but I, I did remember a lot of decks having about eight or nine um especially the thundrix profiteers oh this they was, were this was written before thundrix oh yes you're right yes sorry yes uh so yes by the end of of night vault you were getting uh after this was written there was four more war bands released and a lot more good surges came out a lot more of the easy surges like calculated risks um but at this point when it was written it was actually quite hard to get those seven surges in those seven score immediately in that i kind of end up recommending um now obviously yeah, cause the, the chance of uh i'll just go over the stats quickly because well we can't well we can yeah so if you have six score immediately cards or surges the chance of drawing three in your first hand is nine percent seven is 16 and eight is 25 uh, the chance of drawing zero in your first hand, if you have three score immediate leads, is 38%. Uh, four is 25. Five is 15. Uh, if you have six score immediate leads, the chance of drawing zero in your first hand is 9%. And then seven was 5% and eight was 2%. Yeah. So I think now, particularly with so many scorecards, and these are your gateways to your first hand upgrades. Uh, if you have any upgrades in your first hand, you need these surges. So if yeah, you're running... because basically they use you to either get the ball going first, so you get the momentum, or help you catch up later in the game. Ideally, you really want surges um, <clears throat> in round one and two, yeah. because uh, if you draw them all near the end, it kind of is not ideal because they're supposed to help get you going. Yeah, because uh, they're normally low, lower scoring. Is what is the way I normally regard them, uh, but we'll talk about the end phase ones a bit later, I suspect. But these ones, you're you're looking at basically one point, easy to score, turn them out. Six is the maximum you can take at the moment, so I would recommend you take that. If that changes, uh, then this is where you kind of get onto the second piece of data that we have here, which is the chance of you drawing three in your first hand, and crazily. I actually don't want to draw three in my first hand. Um, it's it's a case of you want a end phase higher scoring card to work towards, not yeah, rely on drawing into them. Because uh, if you have three surges, the issue, a trap you can run into is you do things to score your surges at the detriment of your end phase objectives. So yeah. when you're building your deck, you need to keep in mind how you're actually going to score your end phase. Because so, the biggest thing at the game at the moment is, at the moment... I look at end, uh, surges as almost impossible to stop. So I just disregard trying to stop my my opponent trying to stop sc- surges unless it's like temporary victory because that's really telegraphable. Um, end phase objectives are the key thing. So if you can disrupt someone's end phase objectives, 
that completely bricks their objective deck. Um, but on the other hand, you have to keep in mind that you don't brick your own uh, end phase objectives because it's not too um, bad if you don't score a surge in one round because you can go, I'll just score it again immediately because I can keep it in my hand because I can score it and then draw into another objective. If you don't score an end phase objective, not only are you not scoring anything, you're now uh, blocking up your hand if you don't get rid of it and you're kind of forced into a situation where you have to get rid of it just to get something else. Yeah, so the model I use here is the idea you want two surges in your hand, really. At least one. Two is probably ideal. Uh, one nice end phase card to work towards. That's not to say, though, I would recommend that if you have three of your end phase cards in hand, that you should dump that hand straight away. If you can get through the first round, potentially play a very conservative first round and still score three end phase cards at the end of it, uh, then you're in a really strong position then because you know within the rest of your deck the majority of surge cards are there and you'll be able to knock through the rest of your deck. You know, you've scored yeah, three because... of these end phase ones. Yeah, because once you've got your end phase out of the way, even though you you may start off behind your opponent, the thing is now you can go, okay, I've got all my fixed objectives scored. Now I can do anything I want to score my surges. So a good example was when Keep Them Guessing was around. So you would make sure to score Keep Them Guessing first or even just go in, okay, I've drawn into Supremacy, Path to Victory, um, and then like fired up. So I'll get someone inspired, get onto my free objectives and go for a kill. So even even then that's a really good hand because you would get uh, six glory from it. Well, seven glory because of the kill. Um, But now you can go, now I can just do whatever I want because um, the thing I really liked about my Mournflight was go... Uh, I've got all the, I've got all my end phase. I've scored everything for holding objectives. Now I can just ignore them and run into my opponent. So that's something you need to keep in mind. Or, or when you're doing your surges, you have to go, <clears throat> oh cool, I'm scoring calculated risk, but now I'm out of position or I'm not on an objective, or, yeah. or something that you just have to. It becomes more difficult because you need to be able to keep a gauge of your entire deck. But it's definitely something to keep in mind. That comes a little bit with practicing with a deck as well. You need to know what's coming. Uh, but also when you're building the deck, it's worth thinking the whole point of these surges is for you to get those upgrades on potentially in the first round. So if you need an upgrade to do one of your surges, then that's a questionable choice that you should probably not be making. Um, If, for example, you're using shortcuts, um, I would say you would need to run all three shortcuts or four shortcuts if you've got a mage user. Uh, cards within your deck you need to have them in there to have the consistency to be able to uh, be able to score it first round yeah uh, this comes on to like another article david wrote which is card combos so um here we go let's see um so the power cards that will score a specific objective um so if you have only one power card that can unlock the objective for you it's a 25 percent chance of you scoring that if you have two it's a 44 percent chance if you have three or more, or if you have three, it's sixty-eight, and if you have four, it's a seventy-two percent chance of scoring yeah. um, the objective in hand. Like a good example is also cover ground, because yeah. generally no one's movement six outside of the Grimwatch with the Duke's Harriers inspired. Yeah, but again, they have to inspire. So in the first round, they're not getting it. Yeah, they're only getting it if they've either put a movement upgrade on or they've got a plus one move card of some sort. Uh, so three is that that sixty-eight percent. I feel is a a decent chance that you're going to have the right card in hand to get that surge in your first round. And you can apply that same idea to positioning based ones. So things like scrum 
and temporary victory, both positioning based, uh, you need to have in your hand cards. You need to think, if I'm trying to get temporary victory in the first round, that's my surge, what have I got in my hand to help me get onto those objectives? Do you have yeah. at least three, if not more, because you're going to try to get on three objectives this way, cards to get you onto those objectives rather than relying on just your movement? Yeah, because the issue is like a simple distraction or just being attacked and pushed off an objective can completely mess up your plans, yeah. uh, which is the the hidden difficulty of temporary victory uh, when you're running like lower model warbands. Yeah, uh, for example, with my Mournflight, that's why I ran two steps forward, just because if I needed to know I needed to score this early, I would push two fighters and then move and immediately score temporary victory. Yeah, uh, two steps forward, I think, if you're going objective, is needed. I mean, it does have this curse that uh, that other push can be moved to get someone into an aggro position to get to you more. But normally, you're putting yourself in such a good position with two pushes that it's worth that risk. And in fact, the, uh, the Grimwatch have there push all your ghouls as well, yes. uh, which is a great card for getting something like temporary victory. But the key thing to keep in mind with these kind of card combos is you, as the article basically said, yeah, these go- these cards are great when they work in unison, yeah. but you are going to have a lot of games where they don't come out. Uh, and uh, an issue you'll have is when these objective cards just sit in your hand and basically brick your hand because you can't score them without either having glory to upgrade your fighters to make them scored or having the gambit cards to give you the extra movement or to help you just score the card in general. Yeah. So I think with the surges particularly, you need to make sure that they're not going to be those brick cards. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the only the only one I've ever really broken this rule for is cover ground. Uh, but I've also built the deck with a lot of redundancies to the point where people have questioned like, oh, you've kind of put in too many movement cards. And you could go, yeah, but then the movement, in the the way these cards work in general is, yeah, they help me score cover ground, but they also give me extra bonuses. So I'm not just running them for cover ground. I'm running yeah. them to give me more board control. Yeah. So when you're running these objectives, a good thing to keep in mind is the cards I'm running to help me score them, do they give me other benefits outside of just scoring me this objective? Like yeah. a good example with shortcut is you're running confusion, uh, which is good in general, but you're just running cards that swap places for no reason. And sometimes you have to keep in mind you'll be playing these cards at inopportune moments just to score the glory. So you could go like, uh, I, I need to get on this objective, but I need to score shortcut first to get glory. So I'm just going to play confusion and score shortcut instead of waiting. Yeah. It, it is a balancing act to that point. If you've got the shortcut, you've got the confusion, but then you've also got supremacy in hand. You probably should be waiting to run next to someone and shortcut onto the objective. Uh, yeah, because another thing when there. it comes to surges is this balance of, should I be trying to score them immediately or should I be stocking up first and deciding to go, I'll play it safe and do everything in the last end phase so I can't have this chain of just scoring surge, surge, surge into my end phases or go, I'll get this guaranteed surge and set up the end phases that I could draw into. Yeah. But that's more once you get more practice with your deck. And I think you've um, got to, the timing of when to play the surges is key. Uh, you're right. If, if you've got the obje- uh, an upgrade in hand that you really need down or might keep your fighters safe, then it's probably worth trying to get them really early in the round. But if you've got to the, say, third activation, 
do you need to do it then or is it better waiting to the fourth activation because what's the benefit of scoring it straight away at that point yeah um, like a good example is scoring um even change of tactics you could go on guard and then immediately charge um but if you're going first the issue is or even go if you're going second um you could charge in the third activation or the second activation but now your fighter's just sitting there unsupported yeah. where you could just wait until your last activation charge before your opponent has a time to react because your opponent can, you can charge in your fighter for free knowing they can't be attacked back. Yeah. Um, uh, and then just gamble on the priority. Talking about uh, surges that have bricked my hands, I think the one that's bricked my hands the most is Martyred. But I'm never really worried <laughs> when that's the card bricking my hand for some reason. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I find Martyred bricks the hand a lot. Uh, and there's interesting games where neither opponent wants to kill the opponent's fighter because yeah. they don't want them to score martyred. Uh, um, right. I'm not even thinking that. I'm thinking the games where they're trying to kill my people and I'm sitting there going, missing. would you just kill someone so I can score martyred? Uh, but I shouldn't really complain it, about that. Both scenarios equally funny. But I think the, the main points for your objective deck is um, in Beast Grave, aiming for a deck that can score 20 glory or yeah. close to 20. Like I'd say even 18 or 19 is fine. Uh, a good thing I, I, I just remembered now is aggro objectives. So a lot of surge objectives are aggro, uh, and the issue is they're more risky now because of the drop in accuracy in the game. Yeah. But you have to remember, an objective that requires someone to kill doesn't cost two glory. So for example, um, let's go Path to Victory. Uh, it, it's a dual objective for you controlling two objectives, but you have to kill a, a, a fighter, so you have to have gone out of action. So technically, the card is only worth two, but if you look at it realistically, it's worth three because it's one for the kill and two for the card. So that's a free glory swing. Yeah. Uh, a good example are this uh, aggro surge objectives, like you had precise use of force. Anything that involves you killing your opponent, it's one glory, but that's just for the objective I and mean, it's two. The, the best ones of those are things like what armor, where it only has to be a successful attack or even bold conquest, where you only have to have made the attack. You don't have to have actually killed anyone. But generally, I always like to run at least one objective that um, counts that needs a kill just because it combos off of you killing. I, I think uh, you have it's... to, if you're going aggro, to get enough good surges. And with the end phases you're going to be going for, you have to get those kills anyway. Yes, because even like uh, an objective card, like uh, have three enemy fighters out of action for two glory, that is technically a five glory swing because it's free for each kill. Well, free for the kills and then two for the objective. Um, so it's just another thing you need to keep in mind because um, that's why you might go like an aggro deck may only be 16 glory or 15 from total glory scored. But when you factor in the kills, it, it goes much higher. Um, ways of scoring glory, which we can. Yes, and there's other ways, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, you want six surges, and then you just have to keep in mind how dependent your objective cards are you on specific conditions. Like, do they need your fighters to be a chosen movement or like wounds or whatever, a chosen characteristic, or do you need a specific card to help you score that objective and how many cards you need to factor into your power deck for that? Uh, I think when you then come to end phase cards, you can be a little bit more risky with that. You can allow yes. upgrades to incorporate them uh and as a kind of I'm, I'm looking here uh on like one of these deck building sites and it tells you what the likelihood of people turning up uh of what, how much they get put into decks mm -hmm. and to give you an idea it's within the first 10 cards you have opening gambit combination strikes solid gains and great gains all <laughs> there right yeah 
that's four cards in the deck that are all based around scoring more of your surges. Now, yeah, if the we good use... thing is your opponent can't stop them, but the issue is they can just brick your hand. Well, if we go to my probabilities of drawing cards, yes. Here, if you've got uh, four uh, score of four of these in your hand, you're you've got uh, well, it's a twenty five percent chance that you won't have at least one of them in your original hand. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a two percent chance you'll have three of them in your hands. That's one out of fifty games, which you think might not be very many, but over a two day tournament. I reckon it's going to happen at some point. You're going to draw three score mores into your starting hand. Uh, yeah. uh, I think a good thing also when you're practicing with your deck is to play with your worst hand to see how you can play around that. Like with my Thundrix Profiteers, I did games where I played off starting with Superior Tactician, Combination Strike, um, and then something else like uh, I think it was Opening Gambit. So I would like build the deck around what do I do in that worst case scenario and is it even um scorable at that point because a good thing is going how much do i need to ditch from this objective hand to actually make it work and if you're if you're spending a turn ditching everything it's not really viable yeah. for your deck i just did a bit of quick maths and actually with four of them in your deck uh it's a 20 percent chance that you'll get two of them in your hand <laughs> uh in your first hand and at that point you've got a question what what do you do yeah, it's it just clogs up the deck. This is why I'm so anti them uh, uh, as an illustration. Yeah. The, the annoying thing is, like, generally the stats say you shouldn't run them, but annoyingly they seem to work surprisingly well. Like, my Grimwatch deck is running Combination Strike and Great Gains, and I score them all pretty much every game, which two, is annoying. Two is something you could probably get away with uh i mean yeah. going combination strikes and great gains is quite a risky two to pick uh but uh i suppose if anyone's going to do it grimwatch will do it uh, yes but i would i would suggest that you you've got effectively half your deck here to choose from we've already talked about one of them maybe being your kind of not a uh, high scoring non-first phase card that gives you five more cards of those five A good cards, example, I'd say, is like Fired Up. Fired Up is a really safe one glory yeah, end phase card. So I would say you probably want at least two really safe end phase cards, just or ones you can score easily. So Fired Up's a good one. Uh, and I think, essentially, what's another really easy one to do? Oh, Team Effort. Team Effort. What yeah. a great card for a three man warband or a four man warband. So uh, it's just act to make sure each fighter has made at least one action. Yeah. Um, and arguably, if you're only running one um, win more card, uh, you could probably put in either great gain, no, I mean, not great gain, solid gains or opening gambit because they're fairly safe for one glory just running one. But the downfall is you have to remember is if they're on their own, they're really hard. Those those other three cards, that's where you've got to get in things like your path to victory or supremacy or your keep choppings, uh, magical storm even, you know, those kind of yeah. cards where you're scoring at least two glory, something that actually requires a bit of effort to get, uh, but isn't risky. It's something you should be able to reliably do. Yeah, I think the hard the hard thing unfortunately aggro players will have to accept is uh, it's dictated by your faction cards, your faction objectives, and also the surges you're looking at are generally 
the majority of them are very risky, but the payoff is you get more glory if you achieve them. Yeah. But you just have to keep in mind they're more difficult to score compared to a lot of the surges out there. Yeah, but if you're effectively at that point, they are the cards you need to consider when you're coming to the next bit, the gambits, because they are the highest scoring ones that are going to need a bit more of assist. Yeah, so go, going on to gambits, well, the power deck, it's made of a minimum of 10, well, actually, you could have it all 20 upgrades if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> or but more. generally, you can only run... Um, Half your power deck uh, can only be gambits. So you can't have more gambits than upgrades. Uh, but yeah, if you wanted to, you could run 20 upgrades. J- the minimum is 20 cards for the deck. I used to run 22. Uh, I have a good friend, Jay Claire, who, want to- who runs 24. Uh, I used to champion 22 when card choice was less important because it was um, the game was more positional. Yeah. Uh, it-, it required positioning to be more important during Shadespire and Night Vault. It's still important during Beast Grave, but because cards are so important now, I only run 20 card decks. Um, yeah. So I used to champion 22. I would not advise going over 20 anymore. I I would suggest things. So again, one of the common ones that comes a lot is people go run 22 and they put frenzied search in. Yes. Uh, and actually, that's a false economy. There, you're not those if those other 10 cards are so important you need them in your hand you're better off not including those two other cards despite the fact that the frenzy search draws through it doesn't it doesn't work yeah. out mathematically to your favor and the issue is if you bottom deck it you it's it's going to be useless yeah um but it it's just i would yeah, say i would advise 20 uh, the again the possible exception to that is the three man warbands yeah, because uh, technically you could um, balance it out if you spend two activations drawing if you discard your first hand. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it might be all right for them. Uh, yeah. So like the that. only debatable core choice is like free fighter war bands, but ideally just because objectives become so important that you need to score all of them, it's unfortunately advisable just to stick to 20. Yeah. Uh, so when you're doing the gambits, I don't know about you, but I always will think first off, what are the must include? I'll go through every single card and go, will this help me score any of my objectives? If it doesn't help me score an objective, it doesn't get included. So if none of yes. my objectives require me to kill anyone, I will not be putting anything in there that makes help me hit or hurt or damage people. Uh, yeah, because I think the general thing with the gambits is you're looking for them to support what you're trying to do, not for them just to do things like upgrades can. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, that's a good shout because I, like for my Mournflight deck, um, the only aggro objective I have is Path to Victory. So when I need that kill, I've got um, their reaction card to attack again after failed attack action. Yes. And that's only there just for Path to Victory. If I wasn't yeah. part running Path to Victory, I wouldn't want run it. So there's sometimes it's worth maybe dropping in a token gesture or something, but you need to concentrate on what you're trying to do with them. Yeah. And I would um, always focus on the faction cards first because they're generally the strongest and the ones that are going to be most helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've your Mournflight with they're now able to take five distraction type cards. Uh, four. Four is it only four? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Only uh, four. Only four. This uh, is fine. <laughs> It's 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 strong. Um, oh yes, because that's uh, but that's it. something to keep in mind. Like because a lot of faction cards double up, so the Mournflight have their own faction distraction. Then you've got distraction, nightmare in the shadows, 
uh, which are all just push an enemy fighter one hex. And then they've got Call of the Grave, which is choose an enemy fighter, push them two hexes towards any friendly fighter. So, so that's a super distraction, basically. Yeah. So when so distraction is a great example of a card uh, that is brilliant and probably should be in every deck, and so should the any other version of it you have because of its versatility as well. So yes, yeah. if you're trying to get an objective, distraction will help you do that by getting other people off the objective so you can stand on it. If you're trying to yeah, be okay. aggro, then you can move that person towards you so you can then hit them. Uh, if you're trying to live, then you can push the person away so they can't hit you. Um, and yeah, it's like it's it has a it's a really good control card because um, at the moment you run it just to stop people scoring hold objectives, but it's really good for punishing people next to or near lethal hexes as well. So yeah. you could push someone into a lethal hex so they're easier to kill, yeah. or attack someone next to a lethal hex, push them adjacent, and then play a push card to kill them. Yeah. Um, so the, it really rewards positioning. And the reason it's slightly stronger than sidestep, which is another amazing card, is because. By pushing the opponent's figures around, you are whatever, even if it's helping you, disrupting their plans as well. Yeah, because uh, you're forcing them to now invest in for their push cards earlier than they'd like to, because um, a lot of people use it to keep themselves safe effectively. Yeah. So I think with the gambits, there's so much choice, and you're right, the faction ones are normally so much better than the generic ones. It's a case yeah. of really fine tuning those 10 cards that give you the most help getting those objectives now i often find at this point that i'd look at one of my objectives and go well my 10 gambits help me score nine there's like 11 of these objectives but not one of them which questions why that objective is in my deck yes so um, i might like then good... go back and review my objectives again at this point yeah so a good thing is always keeping your objectives nearby <clears throat> just as a reference point because you always have to keep in mind um, you shouldn't be running strong gambits just because they're strong. Like yeah. A common pit trap I see is aggro decks just running rest of prize just because it's strong, even though it doesn't help them score anything. Yeah. Uh, like, I, have, uh, I often actually no literally take my gambit, once I have built the deck, take the gambit cards and line them up with my objective cards and go, which, how many, and try and make it so each objective card, again, will have those three gambit cards that will help do it. And if I can't do that, then there's not enough uh, synergy i feel in my deck yeah uh, i'd say the the gambits are the things that are most like linked to the objective deck if there's too much of a discrepancy between the two that's usually when decks fall apart yeah um if you feel at any point that your gambits are then leaving holes in your playstyle, that's where i use the upgrades yeah i think that's a fair shout because like they're very closely linked in a way i use the upgrade deck so a lot of people don't think upgrades are important i think they're essential because they allowed you to spec into other play styles yeah. but also they they help support the gambit and objective deck while also giving you more choice to do things that you wouldn't yeah. normally do with either card so, so my, once again i'll oh, go ahead so in my Grimwatch, uh i love to run a bit of aggro you have to run a bit of aggro i feel because otherwise they're just there a good player will just come and take you off and the idea that you can just suddenly turn around with someone with a potion of rage or uh fated blade uh is my favorite one chuck fated someone, blade is the best chuck someone with fated blade in their back line one of your resurrecting comeback every time ghouls and you you give your opponent a really tough choice yeah the fated blade could not work but it could run up to your guy who's got four wounds and take him out in one hit. Oh, Are yes. you willing to uh, leave it, that guy there? And it comes down um, to board control. 
Yeah, uh, and I think even with my Mournflight, I did the same thing. So I had Quickening Greaves, which I'd always recommend uh, for hold objective players anyway, um, because that just gave me um, more reliability with holding objectives when I needed to be on them, because it's effectively your opponent needs two pushes to make that card worthless. Yeah. Because um, it, it, it you can either push a fighter at the start of the round or at the end of a round, so if you've played it and they haven't played a distraction, you can go, that fighter's safe. If they play distraction and equip that and then they're out of pushes, they've just wasted a push effectively. Yeah. Um, but then you've got cards like uh, with my Mournflight, I ran uh, their plus two move cards. So even though they're really fast, that just helped me, gave me more mobility, but also unlocked cover ground for me. Um, so that, because in my... Um, what do you call it? My gambits, I only had two cards, spectral wings and then double move. So that I technically only had two cards to score cover ground. And the good thing about having an upgrade that could help me score cover ground is that upgrade is permanent. So if I draw the yeah. upgrade early, I can equip that going in the back of my mind. Cool. Uh, yeah, cover it, ground it, is safe. It, you had that three cards, but one of them was an upgrade, but you decided that because of the way it works, it was worth that risk uh, because you can put it on. Um, the other thing upgrades have is ways to score more. Yes, that is probably the biggest thing about them. So the obvious ones are keys, yeah. holding specific objectives. I ran the, um, oh, what's it called again? It's the restricted key. I keep forgetting it. The slumbering key. So if your oh, fighter's yeah. alive at the end of the game, you get one glory and you can go, yeah. that's just a one-for-one one trade. And it, But that one glory makes all the difference because people forget that it's not a normal key. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's well, a glory the, opponent can't stop. You've got the newer version of that now, haven't you? Where at the Cryptic end of the companion, yeah, yeah, which is just insanely good. Uh, yeah, cryptic companion is a bit too good at the moment. So at the end of an action phase, if you're holding an objective, that fighter gets one glory. Well, yeah. if that fighter holds an objective, you get one glory in your counter as a quarry. So effectively, that card is worth anywhere from zero to three glory. So that adds three glory to your deck. Um, the slumbering key adds an additional glory. And then you've got Tome of Offerings, which is for every kill you make, you get an additional glory point. So my Mournflight had a 19 glory deck, which was technically 20 because Path to Victory needed a kill. Then I had Tome of Offerings to stack up uh, more glory scoring and the slumbering key. So technically my deck was minimum 21 glory, even though on paper it only says 19. I, I think you've got to be careful. You had two there. Uh, I've... I've designed decks, particularly with keys and stuff, where I've gone crazy and put like yes. five upgrades in there that score more, and that's just too much. Uh, so I think it's one of those ones where two, maybe three score mores, and you need to play the game as though you're not going to get them. They're a bonus. Yeah, yeah. don't imagine you're going to score them all the time. Just go like, this is a nice extra boost, um, which is why I always recommend taking Tom of Offerings if you can, or like Trophy Belt even. Yeah just because that extra glory racks up, especially against um, weaker warbands or elite warbands that don't even bleed well, too the, much glory. The it's just of, maximizing your kills. The Tome of Offerings and uh, cards like it are really good if you get them early on uh, yes. and they lose interest. But So if you have one of them, it's a 25% chance you're going to get it first hand. If you have two of them, it works out at about 40%. Yeah. Uh, so again, I've, I've found Tome of Offerings is just, it's so good. Even if you draw it um, at the end of your second round to equip, even getting just three to four activations of just Tome of Offering kills is enough to swing a game, which is, 
great for you, uh, but also terrible for you if you're playing against it. But that, that's why I always recommend taking Tome of Offerings. It's it's always good to have an option to go into aggro, even if you're not haven't built your deck around it. Because yeah. the weakest, the, the worst thing is um, trying to play aggro when you've got no support at all. Well, often when you've built non for aggro, you've probably done a few attacks to wear people down. Yes, and then you can just go in in that last round when you have the Tome of Offerings and do the killing blows. Yeah, is it? But it's like. Um, I think you have the most freedom with the upgrade deck, um, but never discount it because I see people just like always throwing away their upgrades. Um, I always, I'd like, I've generally a lot of the time kept upgrade heavy hands if I can score them because, or, or they're really important upgrades like great strength or my wound upgrades like great fortitude, just because they either give me extra damage to one shot enemy fighters or give me the ability to survive or stay in the game. But once again, that's something you have to get used to when you practice more and uh, get more familiar with your deck and playstyle. It's one of those biggest shifts that's happened in the game because we brought in these more easy to score surges and more consistently scoring surges. That first hand where you've got three upgrades and two ploys in it, uh, you can now look at it and go, well, actually, in my other hand, I've got two surges. I'm definitely going to score. So yes. you don't need to get rid of it anymore. In fact, I've, you, you're right. You can sit there with like four or five upgrades in your first hand. And if you've got the surges to mirror it, to go with it, then it's often better to keep it because effectively upgrades are stronger ploys by the time you start playing for them. You know, it's not plus yeah, one well, you've one got attack, this thing where... plus one damage always. Yeah, you've got this thing where gambits are generally more helpful at the start of the game uh, and then upgrades become exponentially stronger but you have terrible things where you get all your upgrades you ditch them and then you're just drawing into gambits so you have nothing to scale up your fighters as, as the glory counter yeah. scales up as well but i think that is that with the how easy it is to score glory early on has definitely lessened it's no longer a case that you'll get before it was you wouldn't see upgrades until the second round now people are doing them second activation or in crazy cases first activation they're sticking upgrades down yeah, especially with the loss of um, escalation, which is a good and bad thing in itself. But now people are more um, yeah, free no, playing with the upgrades because yeah. there's no downside for you playing your own upgrades now. Yeah, yeah. There's no risk and there's no point not waiting. Yes, because, yes, yeah. Um, but the key thing to keep in mind with the power deck is gambits really need to focus on your objectives that's that's what they're there for they need to help you achieve your playstyle, and then upgrades are where you have more freedom to spec into different stuff or yeah, yeah like or give you more choice or problem solve yeah if your yes. problem is your fighters keep dying stick some plus one wounds in or defensive upgrades in some way if the problem is or you can never successfully get an attack in yes then stick in some plus dice attacks um, like a good example with like with my Mourn Flight, um, I can effectively make them all four wounds when they're inspired because they have a faction Great Fortitude and Great Fortitude. Yeah. Um, and when um, the Anguished One inspires, she goes to four wounds. When uh, Widow Kytha inspires, she goes to three wounds. So then I can give Widow Kytha and the Screaming Maiden plus one wounds and they that suddenly becomes a four wound warband that is really good against aggro, oh, so hard which is very annoying. Or you make Lady Harrow six wounds. Or I find five wounds the golden spot. 
Yeah. So you five, make Lady Harold five and Anguished one five. Five is a, a good place to be with wounds. It's a particularly difficult time to get out. A lot of people have three damage hits and they can great strength or plus one damage up into four. But when you're at five, it's very hard to one-shot kill. Yeah, it's no longer like Shades by where you had Trap and Twist the Knife floating around. Yeah. Um, but even then, like with my uh, Thorns of the Briar Queen and Grimwatch, like David said, I would run Fated Blade, which used to be Hero Slayer. Uh, even in Shades by you had like the Shade Glass weapon, so Shade Glass Hammer and Shade Glass Dagger, yeah. just because you only really had um, Lady Harrow, not Lady Harrow, the, the Briar Queen as the damage dealer. To an extent, you had Varclav, but he was seen at the back pushing everyone with his magic lamp. Yeah. Um, so you need to keep in mind, like even with the Grimwatch, you've got um, Grisselwell, which is great, but if he's not inspiring, um, like the Grimwatch especially, you have to play as if they can't inspire. So that's oh. why a lot of my upgrades are just weapons or dice modifiers because Grisselwell, once he gets the free fury, he's really, really dangerous. But with two fury, he's just a loose cannon you can't rely on, and your opponent's kind of like. Eh. Uh, I stop upgrading him or taking any upgrades designed for him because I would yes. try and use him early on for a cheeky kill. Like I, yes. I would try the charging on the two swords, maybe do the three wounds, push you into lethal to kill you for four, game-winning yeah. kind of risk. But if he died, I didn't really mind because I would have uh, all the upgrades designed for the other guys you can't hit. Um, yeah that's the redundancy like because the the bad thing is like for example hold objective players if you went and ran all the keys which is keys one to five uh, and even the sixth key which is the formless key or the seventh the slumbering the issue is you now have you have tons of end game potential um, but in a best of three opponent knows how to play around that and when they start killing your key fighters even if you have enough to make uh, not gristle well um, crack marrow four damage it's just crack marrow and you can only be in so many places at once. Yeah. So you really like in general want to make sure your deck is make has no redundancies. So you can't just go, obviously you can build your deck. So you have like a, an amazing monster killer, but then you have to play around what happens if I can't do that or that fighter's dead. And I think that's where the upgrade deck really, uh, upgrade cards really come into their own it it because comes, it just give you more choice. Yeah. And it, and it comes into something that you like to talk about a lot, which is targeting priority. And yes. by putting in a key upgrade on someone, that will potentially change the opponent's targeting priority. Can I make, because when you play Grimwatch, you take out everyone apart from the guys they can resurrect. That's, yes. that's, that's where you start. But as soon as that guy who they can resurrect has a killy everything he comes anywhere near weapon on him, he becomes a targeting priority. You've actually got to deal with him now. Um, and it makes yeah, thing I like to do. Oh, go ahead. Plan. Oh, yeah, because the thing I like to do with um, my Mournflight is put the slumbering key on like a fighter at the back of the board. Um, because when people realize they need to kill that fighter for the to stop me getting an extra glory, um, they now have to choose. I've got Lady Harrow in my face, but she's the imminent threat. And then they'll usually just go, I'll just leave her. It's just one glory. Uh, it's not going to do much. Or I, there's not much investment. But then by the third end phase, like say we're neck and neck, and then they go, Oh, now I need to get to Widow Kytha, but I've left it too late because she's at the back of the board with that extra glory. And that usually where it comes into importance. So one glory, it can be looked over, but it's when you get into high level play, it becomes incredibly important just for breaking deadlocks and games that would normally be ties. Well, and, and um, anything you can do to cause your opponent a headache during a game is a good thing. Yes. 
Like, if you yeah, give them the a choice best... of, of dealing with the threat or stopping you scoring glory, and there's no correct choice there, there's no way yeah. you know which was the right one to do, that's a great choice to give them because they have to think about it and do something about it. And potentially at that point in time, you're setting up a completely different play that they're not even paying attention to. Yes, like an easy thing is they go, oh, you're buffing Lady Harrow, so I have to go after Lady Harrow, when the only reason I'm buffing Lady Harrow is so you go after Lady Harrow. It's just like some of those things, like um, a good thing is when you use your upgrades to create distractions because they are so strong and they have a permanent in-game effect, but it's dependent where and who you put them on. Um, But it's it's like setting up plays, uh, which is a more complicated part of the game but it's something um upgrades are unlooked on unlooked over when it comes to it because it does dictate how your opponent can play because as david said the biggest thing is trying to take make your opponent take risks when generally players for underworlds especially opponent and yourself want to make the safest guaranteed play possible yeah yeah uh, it's a balance to takes a long time to perfect uh, i'll tell you when i get there <laughs> Yeah, even now it's like people go like, how do you do that with like all the great players? I was like, it's uh, so a lot of it's calculated, uh, but sometimes I just throw everything at my opponent because um, I find if you try and overwhelm them, generally they'll pick the wrong choice and you can go, yes, this is what I always meant to do, yes. Or they just attack and miss and that's go, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. I think it also comes down to when you try these things out you can see how they work against people uh and that's where the practicing with the same deck comes in and one of the when having built a deck be really careful if you spend all that time thinking about it changing it dramatically Uh, yes i think a good thing to touch upon is like once you've got your deck completed um a a common pit trap i used to go into early is like once i had the deck i'm like this is my plan this is how to follow and then when i wasn't achieving it in game i would be tempted to make drastic changes to the deck which completely change it yeah Yeah. um i think a good example was my spike claw swarm was where i was for my 11th for my 12th objective i was contemplating either supremacy or hone survival instincts and i ran supremacy and i was just like i'm only scoring it 60 percent of the time in general and when I am scoring it, I was winning anyway. Um, but chain, adding that card in on trying to make it work completely changed the deck because it was very aggro flex focused. But now I needed to run more push cards just to get supremacy, which wasn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's a balance. It, so yeah, try it out. Change cards. Uh, never change a card if it didn't even get played. Right? Yes. Uh, and but do little changes at a time and try different things that may not have worked against one person, but that card may work really well in another game. One game is not going to be enough to decide. Yeah, it's like um, the important thing is practice as always, but you need to identify like uh, even like I run cards that only are specific for certain matchups. Like Tome of Offerings, generally quite useless against elite warbands because especially curse breakers because that you're coming to them and even if you get that kill it's more of a swing but now they could just kite you for for glory but it's really crucial for matchups like the grimwatch and thorns of the briar queen yeah. where all of a sudden you can just rack up kills but even then i'm sacrificing a restricted slot uh and an aggro upgrade slot just for that card even though my deck really isn't built around it 
Um, but that's those those kind of specific things you need to keep in mind. Uh, uh, well, but then, David's then... right because, like, if you massively change the deck with like lots of changes, you basically have to rebuild it. And and you're touching on something there, which is worth considering, which is what is it you're likely to see. At the end of the day, you are more likely to see Beast Grave War bands than you are or older war bands. You're more likely to see the more up to date war bands. Uh, so the chances of you now coming across a wound five fighter are pretty high at the moment within the meta because there is two of them now that have five or more wounds. They're quite common on the scene. Uh, the troll does occasionally appear every now and again. And you've also got all these four wound fighters who will be taking plus one wounds. Uh, yeah. So that's, um, what was it called again? Giant Slayer. So score yeah. two glory for killing a five wound fighter. The issue is that is a surge. So it's one of your f six surge cards. Yeah. But it's, really, it's a really good choice for aggro decks because you're generally at the moment, if you're playing aggro, you're running quite quite risky at the moment and just hitting you might you kind of might want to just double down on it just because that is a free glory swing for you yeah uh, and it is it's it's a big swing isn't it uh but it's now yeah. worth considering that kind of thing because that's what the present meta is probably by the time other people listen to this or, uh then it will change entirely but you got to consider maybe consider what would have happened and what what you are likely to see how likely those cards are at the moment because old cards that you haven't seen for a while might suddenly be worthwhile looking at again yeah like um a another thing for deck construction is generally it depends what you're trying to build for but generally if you're planning to play in tournaments or competitively you need to keep an eye on the meta or keep uh your the meta in your mind because yeah as you say niche choices become really good um so like the good thing is when you surprise your opponent with certain objectives you have um yeah just because of something they may not expect but it, as i said yeah you need to keep in mind of the meta like i only take tome of offerings just because it can win you matchups that normally you struggle really hard in um and even like when you're playing a good thing with hold objectives x if you're running uncontested and coveted spoils um, you can go, I'm running both because they're free glory either way. So even though my glory deck's like 27, it's more realistically, or like 24. So it's like more real realistically 21 because I'm basically going to score either either objective every game because you can go, I haven't, none of my friends play aggro, but I'm going to run into aggro because, um, what do you call them? Hrothgorn's Man Trappers and Ripper Snarfangs are about there. Yeah. I can't ignore them. So yeah. um you should never build your deck planning in to go, I'm never going to run into my bad matchup. Like, well, and sometimes you might want to think, what is my bad matchup and what's my mistake? So recently I've been trying to look into Nurgle and get the Nurgle guys to work. And I've been revisiting some old cards. And I'm thinking, well, with their damage reduction, one of their big weaknesses is range three damage one type attacks. That's mm -hmm. what I'm really worried about. And I was like, there's a card about that, wasn't there? So I've been running Reinforced Armor, a card oh. I never thought I'd use. But actually, <laughs> it's been really useful because you now can't ping damage me for one damage from a distance because I've got Reinforced Armor. You, know, you have to get that crit hit for that to go through. And it's one of those cards from last season that people have forgotten about entirely. And I've played it in a couple of games and people have been like, what? 
Yes, it's like because uh, the thing is, like, if you catch out your opponent, like a good thing with the slumbering key is, even though I tell people this is the slumbering key, they'd go, "Yeah, cool, it's a key," and then they'll go, "How did you score that? You're not on an objective because slumbering key, you just need to be alive." And people just completely forget about it because no one, no one had seen it since like it got restricted back in the start of Night Vault. So it's like it's those little things that can catch your opponent out. Uh, and then one thing to keep in mind when you are playing against your bad matchups is to understand why they're bad. And even if you're still losing them, you shouldn't rebuild the deck to tech into your bad matchup. Agreed. Because if your bad matchup is really uncommon, you're now teching into... Yeah, you you beat something that's really uncommon, but now you're losing to the stuff you originally were had no difficulty against. And it's it's that thing of how many of those bad matchups is there? How many people yeah. would it actually help against uh, as a kind of basic thing to consider? And yes, you can put a couple of cards in there to help with stuff, but don't overload the deck with it. Um, and I think I suppose both of us try and say a little bit is. Often you go onto these deck building sites and they will give you the top rated, the ones that are put into the decks the most often. And it's worth considering looking down and going all the way down to the bottom and looking at those cards and going, actually, could I use these cards? Will that give my opponent a nasty surprise? Because they won't be expecting it and therefore won't know how to deal with it. Yeah, because uh, like it's once again trying to <clears throat> outdo your opponent and just... Um, the worst thing you can do is be predictable. Yeah. Um, but a good uh, another good thing for once you've built your deck and played it is uh, always ask someone's opinion. So I usually ask David and some of the other Reading guys for some advice when it comes to certain decks or certain play styles I'm not used to, just to see for like their comparison in the bad matchups, what they find good, see how they've done. Because, um, yeah, the good thing is, the important thing is to make sure you've got a lot of games in before you make those changes like i can make changes quite quickly because i've been playing the game for way too long and i know all the matchups so if i if i can i can quickly identify what's wrong and i know i can take with that risk yeah i'm changing it quite quickly but this is what i've felt is wrong but in general you want to take it slow and it's really good asking for second opinions because even if you disagree with them it brings you to a, a new viewpoint you wouldn't have considered i i think it's also worth pointing out the reason I like sending my list to you, and I think it works well when you send it back to me, is because you're London-based and I'm Reading, although we're on each other's doorsteps. Uh, the metas can be very different. Like within a yeah. few months, with new stuff coming out, the way London's playing it is different from the way Reading's playing it. And uh, I'll say, I can't get this to work. Uh, and it gives you that kind of insurance that actually down the road these cards are useful or maybe these cards won't work down the road but they will work here uh and that's really important to think of the uh, to get a sample of the wider country or worldwide meta and have a look at that before going to something like a grand clash Um, yeah because for example like uh london is really aggro based so aggro based to the point we dropped the grimwatch because they couldn't work because they just died too quickly. But then if you went outside of London, all of a sudden Grimwatch were everywhere. And it was actually uh, my problem is I had to start playing Grimwatch to get practice how to beat them because uh, no one in London could play them just because they died too quickly. Yeah. Uh, but then in Rending, um, that's more like of a flex area. So it can be we held call it, uh We call it shenanigans-based meta. Yes, uh... yes. <laughs> So if you've played me or seen me with my crazy plays sometimes and you go, how did he do that? 
it's usually I've stolen them from Reading or just played against them already, so I know what to do, basically. Yeah. Because yeah. um, the one thing I enjoy playing when, when I'm playing against David is we usually come up with the craziest of plays. Um, yeah. It's that, but that's that's just one of the fun things about the game. Yeah. But then when you go further up into the Midlands, like around Nottingham and above, it becomes more hold objective, more control because those players like more reliability and. That's that's just how those areas play, uh, but that's just from my experience because I have travelled around the country. But even even technically, the UK is quite close together. There's quite a lot of variance. There's no real fixed type of play, um, so that's just something you need to keep in mind when you're trying to chase the meta. Yeah, yeah, and don't chase the meta to the detriment of your own plan. You know, if you've got a plan, you might define the meta. You might break the meta. Go with it. Yeah, because um. Like for, yeah, as I said, with the Skaven, like uh, pushing them into aggro, and even though there were other like aggro builds before, I think I was the one who made uh, it the most successful, but it pushed it to um, popularity because everyone was seeing it doing so well. But you could do that with any playstyle. Um, oh, there's one, yeah. You were well. You still are the best eyes of the nine player, even though someone did win a tournament with them. Um, you have done them well perform with the best with them uh, um, yeah well the the way i was playing them uh as objective grabbing and it was literally shenanigan based and one of the reasons i could do well with them is because they were played so little people didn't know how yeah. to deal with them and i was playing cards like earthquake and i'd set up everyone one square in the same direction away from all the objectives and then in the final round earthquake everyone onto the objectives and score them well, well, yeah, another thing was when I did my Swarming Spirit uh, Scottish <laughs> Round Pack deck. Who's Swarming was... Spirit deck? <laughs> well, not my Swarming Spirit. So I had an idea but on paper and I was like, oh, this would never work. So then I spoke to Rob, one of the Reading guys, and then he's like, oh, you need to speak to, speak to David because David's been building this Swarming Spirit deck. And then yeah. like they proved to me it was really viable. So once I realized they could make it work, I decided to make my own tweak on it. And I basically ran their deck, but with my own tweaks to make it more aggro so it could tech into the bad matchups better. Because um, I remember I was playing someone in the Scottish Grand Clash from London and he was like, he was like, running thorns. He's like, yes. He's like, you've been speaking to Rob, haven't you? And he's like, <laughs> yes, unfortunately I have. Yeah. Uh, but that's the kind of thing, because um, even though thorns were like considered really good, no one was really running them in that kind of way. So well, that's why you shouldn't be discouraged if you're running... Um, a warband in a way that isn't as it's normally expected. Or when you look at it on paper, you go, oh, like, Einskull's boys, these these guys could never do hold objectives. Like, uh, th But that, that that's the kind of thing we're trying to say, basically. So what's interesting was that actually came from a goblin deck that Rob was trying to ring, uh, win with, because goblins at that point were suffering so much. He was just trying anything and everything. And it was <laughs> one of those examples of where actually playing a lower-powered warband increased his creativity. He came up with this great idea of how to play, but actually, I then just transferred it over to this the, a better warband, effectively, that could do it uh, more consistently. Um, yeah. So going to, and like when I played Eyes, it gave me so much idea about how to do control and disruption and objective play because it was a lower state warband that then I could transfer that and play with other warbands more successfully in that style. Yeah, so it's like uh, what you may find, sometimes it's not the deck that's making you suffer it could just be the warband 
So you might find you've you've figured out a good plan, a good uh, play style, but it's the warband letting you down. So you may find it better if you can find similar or better faction cards to go with a better, well, not a better faction, but a different faction that will make that deck work more. Yeah, they they Um, will just have the right things, the little tools to make that work a little bit better. Yeah, and you shouldn't be discouraged like, oh, my warband's bad. It's just more, it's not working to the way I want to play it. But you shouldn't look at the time you've spent with that warband as useless because you can go, I now got the basics to play with it with this warband. I can now expand on it with now. I'm keeping the deck basically the same. I'm just using a different warband, so I just need to learn those fighters. Even when your local gaming group has to do an intervention to tell you to stop playing Eyes of the Nine and move on. Yes, it was. I, I even had to stop. Like you guys don't understand once david stopped playing eyes of the night he started winning tournaments again that was that was that was the key thing here it was just like uh, poor eyes of the night um but yeah i think that's pretty much i think we've covered everything i, I think quite thoroughly uh, unless there's anything else you can think to add david no uh I'm, I'm sure i could ramble on with you for many hours about yes. underworlds uh quite happily but nothing springs to mind at this point in time yeah, I think we've covered everything. The only um, other things that go into is just more like target priority and positioning. But I, c- I can cover those later uh, on another podcast because they they all develop. Uh, well, they all deserve their own episodes because Agreed. they are very thorough. Yeah. Uh, but I think with this, you will have the really good foundations for building your deck. Choose it well, not choosing your warband, but when it comes to deck construction, how you should build your objective deck, your gambit deck, your upgrades, and implementing that into practice and how you should make tweaks and changes yeah um uh, and if you yeah. have if you have questions feel free to hunt me down and ask me questions uh i'm fairly easy to find i think uh particularly around facebook and everything uh yeah he's usually posting everywhere or on my stuff but yeah you can ask either of us because both of us are happy to help and share because it helps grow the community and it actually helps build our knowledge and confirms what we're doing is right instead of just insane yeah so, no, no, i don't I like uh, the insane place <laughs> yeah it's like they're like john why, why are you doing these crazy things because they worked once it will <laughs> work um, again yes <laughs> especially when they work on stream yeah the greatest thing is when you make your accidents look like ingenious plans but that's just another thing entirely but yeah uh but yeah that was it from critcast episode two so i'll just let so it's goodbye from david bye-bye And it's goodbye from me, and I'll speak to you guys soon, shortly. So see you around. Have a good day. Bye.